And welcome back to A Pagan Heart in Maine. On today's episode, I talk a little about my family, and we have an interview with the Abrahadabra Oasis here in Portland, Maine. To start us out today, here's Laura Powers with Durantia.
A few episodes ago, I explained how I was a magpie. I like small, shiny objects and feel a strong sense of ownership when they become within arm's reach. I can't help it. So is this illness I have a learned behavior, or is it a hereditary defect? I think it's a little of both. You see, I come from a long and glorious line of pack rats and magpies. My family is just that way. It can be a good thing, though. As the kids grow up and move out on their own and are looking for furniture to put in a new apartment, you can be sure that there are at any given time six or seven extra couches to be given by various members of my clan. We don't like to get rid of things. Now this doesn't just apply to furniture, and here's a good example. I have eight brothers. Why? Because I'm part of a collection. Anytime we get more than two of something, it becomes a collection. And I'm collectible number four in a set of nine. Now, of course, with that many brothers, we do have our sibling rivalries. And I can remember as a young six or seven year old going to get something out of the hallway closet. And my older brother had to have been hiding in there for hours just waiting for me to open that door. And looking back on it, I'm sure there was nothing more funny than watching a round little kid trying to run for his life, screaming from whatever creature had decided to jump out at him from the closet. I didn't much care for older brothers. And of course, time went on, and while my brothers went on with their lives, I would found myself in a place where I could live my childhood in relative peace. Until my younger brother entered the picture and my position as most favored child was relegated to reluctant babysitter. And suddenly I understood. Being an older brother carries a heavy responsibility. And while I didn't much care for older brothers during my young oppression, being an older brother didn't really excite me either. But at least you had the benefit of being able to put into practice what I had learned from my older brothers. Now, I was never afraid of the dark, I was afraid of the monsters hiding in the dark. There's a difference. So one of the benefits of having a younger brother was being able to send him upstairs in the dark to turn on the lights. My reasoning being, if there was a monster up there, it would eat my younger brother, and not me, and also leave a well-fed monster so that I could safely climb the stairs and turn on the light myself, thus solving two problems at once. And I will admit that hiding in a closet for several hours is well worth the expression on my younger brother's face when he opened the door and I jumped out. Now, as I have said, this is an incredible responsibility, and here's why. If you watch nature programs, you'll see bears and tigers and other various animals. And watch the young ones. They wrestle, they hunt each other, they attack. And what they're learning are basic tools to survive. And I think the same is in the human world as well. Now we grew up and we moved out on our own, but we are part of a collection, and the collections grow. So after taking a break for about 10 years, Mom went out and collected four more. Now ages 8 to 15, bringing the number of us brothers to nine altogether. And that brings us to today. I was over visiting a little while ago and my 11-year-old younger brother wasn't listening to anyone and was just being a pest. So I walked across the deck over to the pool and said, So I walked across the deck over to the pool and said, What's that at the bottom of the pool? Now, of course, he came running over and looked down. I like to think at that moment when he just saw his reflection looking back at him that he realized he had been set up. 
and listening to the splashing sounds behind me, I walked back to the table with a smile, knowing that I was still a good older brother.
And that was Entropy by Wendy Rule. And welcome back. And I'm here with Casey, the secretary at the Abrahadabra Oasis. And welcome. Thank you. So what exactly is the Abrahadabra Oasis and what do you do here? Abrahadabra Oasis is the local main body of the Ordo Templi Orientis, which is the international uh, Thelmic organization that was started by Theodore Royce, better known by uh, Alistair Quilley's involvement when he became OHO, the head of the order, and reformulated to be a Thelmic organization based around the ideals and principles set forth in the Book of the Law. So, Book of the Law. It's uh, in 1904, while on honeymoon with his first wife, Alistair Crowley received the Book of the Law over three successive days uh, between the hours of noon and 1 p.m., April 8th, 9th, and 10th, in Cairo, Egypt, and it was dictated to him by a, a, he would refer to a creator of human intelligence, and it was a received thing. He wrote it three hours down and basically forgot about it <laughs> for a while. He didn't really want any part of it, and it wasn't until much later in his life as he progressed. When he found it again, he, he was just overtaken with it, and finally, I think, understood a lot of what he was reading in it, and from that point on, accepted his position of the prophet of the new aeon. Now, when most people think Aleister Crowley, especially among the Christian base, they see devil worshiper, Satanist. Could you explain a little bit about his life and his path? Crowley was born and grew up in a very religious Christian environment, and I've read that his only book he was allowed to read until he was a preteen was the Bible. And so he knows it, he knew it fairly well, uh, very well. And when he finally left to college, at that point, he never really was into it. And when he finally went to college in Cambridge and throughout the course of his studies there, he, he met uh, a gentleman who introduced him to the Golden Dawn, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And he became an initiate with them when he was about 24, I think. Through, through this process, he, he experimented with a lot of different religions. You know, at one time, was he a Satanist? Yes. Was he a Buddhist? Yes. You know, was he a Christian? Yes. Was he nothing? Yes. <laughs> he was probably an atheist too at some point. He experimented all these. One of his first teachers in the Golden Dawn, Alan Bennett, was one of the first um, Westerners to ever be ordained a Buddhist monk who came back west to teach Buddhism. And he spent a lot of time studying with him in the East, where he learned yoga and incorporated that into the teachings in the Templi Orientis. Most of the yoga we do is Raha Yoga. So, I mean, he has a wealth of information that he's drawn from, both in his studies at Cambridge and history and mythology and his studies with the Golden Dawn and all the different religions he experimented with and learned from. At one point, you know, he would worship God. At another point, he would worship Allah, and the Buddha, all these different religious icons. And in our Gnostic Mass, we have some of those in our saints list. Uh, Mohammed is in there, Krishna, and a few other ones. And so he really knew a lot about different religions. Because of that, uh, comparative study in religion is a big portion of what people do in the OTO as a byproduct of being involved in it. There's so much, through the rituals and, and the various initiations we all go through, there's so much information there that you can't understand if you are just focused on one. In the suggested reading list, that pick up any book like Magic or Magic and Theory and Practice, uh, which are readily available for the mm-hmm. most part. Uh, you look at the suggested reading list, there's just a whole list of books in there. Um, most of them are books you wouldn't really think would be in our reading list. We have like the Holy Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran. All these make up what we would consider a basic portion of our knowledge. Uh, I totally believe that you should have an understanding of all of them because one person may be more attuned to one religion than another. and you know all of them and are familiar with the beliefs and practices more of them you have more to draw from yourself and accomplishing the great work and so the OTO doesn't consider itself a pagan organization or a Christian religion yet it draws 
from both pagan and Christian paths. How would you describe the OTO in terms of a religion or a philosophy or a uh, organization itself? The Ordo Templi Orientis is a 4013C established religious organization in the United States. Uh, we consider ourselves a Thelemic organization, a Thelemite being one who follows the path of Lima. Thelema is actually comes from the Greek and simply means will and occurs throughout the Holy Bible in a Greek version in many instances where it refers to the will of God. Uh, another aspect of not will you do this or will you do that, but this the higher per- the will. The perfect will. The perfect will in a way. With the so, capital W. With a, will with a capital W, yes. Yeah. <laughs> a Thelemite is someone who has accepted the teachings of the Book of the Law. Whether you bring other things into that from your own personal religion, whatever that may be, or from your own experimentation, that's fine. We don't put any restrictions on what our members can practice. If somebody wants to be a Christian in the order, that's completely fine. For the most part, it's our belief that law of Thelema can exist with other religious practices. It's almost meant to, it's meant to be a, a universal charter and, and that there's nothing in it that would detract from being able to follow a Thelemic Christian path, if, if that be your will. It's not concerned with putting restrictions on what we can and can't do. It's more concerned with making sure that we follow our own divine will, our own purpose, and doing that. Now, one of the teachings, or actually one of the, I, I want to say a, a mantra, is do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. A lot of people misunderstand that to mean I can go out and do whatever I want, when I want, how I want, regardless of consequences. And that's not true, is it? No, there, there's also a corollary to that that many of these people will also forget to, to pronounce. It's do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love under will. Crowley once said that in regards to do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, that it is the strictest possible bond, but it is also the apotheosis of freedom. And that it does not say do what you want. It says do your will. And your will is oftentimes, capital W, will, is oftentimes not really known by the individual. They may think they know their will and they're doing it, but there's also this almost divine course to nature. And the idea is that if everyone was doing their will, there would be no conflict, there would be no strife. Everyone would exist in their course of their existence. Could that be considered like understanding your calling in life? In, in, in many ways. Um, you know, and, and what the actual is finding your will a single purpose? Is it a dynamic aspect of as you go through life, does it change? And those are some philosophical issues, really. To me, the, the true will is both dynamic and static, in that I have this underlying purpose in my life. You know, what do I do? Uh, what am I doing? Uh, how I fulfill that can change. And I may change roles in my life, but I feel like there's still this underlying meaning to it that is propelling me forward. And it's not what you do for work. I consider, you know, my material job, my material job. Right. And right. it's not... So the identification of your will with what you do for work or money is kind of not it's two, right. two different things. <laughs> it's, it's two different things, and and it's to do that will. But a lot of times, it's, it's not really easy because it's not always what you want to do. I mean, there's many instances of Crowley throughout his life where, you know, he's just kind of putting it off. Like for instance, when he first received the Book of the Law, he didn't want to be the prophet of the New Aeon. It took him many years, many years to to really become that and to do what was needed. Likewise, and you know, no one's going to get it right. That's one of, I think, Crowley's lasting contributions, is that he wrote everything, and he didn't try and hide anything from anybody. You can see the worst of him, you can see the best of him, and he did it because he wanted everyone to know that he was a man who 
achieve something, and everyone can do the same thing. So you'd say basically following your own will is sort of like just trying to find the path that we're destined to follow. Um, some people can view it as predestination in a way, that we're destined to do this or that. I don't really consider it that way. Like I said, you know, there's kind of like a dynamic and static aspect to that. And while I think I have this true purpose, I don't really see it as a, I'm going to do this thing. I'm not going to, you know, it's just not at 45 years old, I'm going to do this one thing and that's going to be the purpose of my life. Uh, I, I view it as an ongoing development. Now, you are a secret organization in the sense that some of your rituals are not for the general public. The Ordo Templi Orientis is a uh, fraternity, a mystical fraternity, as well as a religious organization. And as such, we have certain rituals and initiations we consider private in that they're not distributed to the members. Uh, they're not freely available anywhere. For the most part, we're a public organization with private aspects. Our membership is completely private. No one has the ability to go in and find out if somebody's a member unless you're on a need-to-know basis for that. They keep that information very secretive. You know, Is that it, just the nature of the organization? It's just itself? the nature of the organization as a whole. That Even though if I was master of Abhidabra Oasis, I, I couldn't just email our I couldn't just email our Grand Secretary General and ask, "Hey, is this guy a member of the OTO?" You'd be like, "No," <laughs> <laughs> you know. Or, you know, for the most part, that information is not given out. As such, most of our very much like the Masonic organization, they have their their public organization, but they have some stuff they consider secret, even though a lot of it's been published. In our case, a lot of it hasn't been published. Now, at one time, at one time, the OTO did come down from the Freemasons, didn't it? It, it? Some of its structure did come from the Freemasons. The, the original founder, Theodore Royce, the OTO was actually originally founded by a group of high-ranking Freemasons, much like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was. And the OTO, like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, was a little bit different in that they uh, accepted women as well. Women are full members of the body; they're not considered subpar in an auxiliary role they're full initiates and mm -hmm. have equal share among the the order itself you really can't consider it a masonic organization at all we have no ties to masonry we may have a similar structure where we're a fraternity of brothers and sisters that come together and have rituals and do initiations so as we exist today there we are not a masonic organization but at one point we were built from a masonic the masonic organization so, so that kind of lends itself into the initiatory process and the levels within the OTO itself. To some extent, yeah. The OTO within it has another branch called the Ecclesia Gnostica Catholica, it's EGC, the Gnostic Catholic Church. And through the various initiatory grades, there's a, there's a matching ordination within the EGC. Come second degree, you can, you're allowed to take your ordination as a deacon. Uh, fourth and PI, uh, you're, you can become an ordained priest or priestess. Now, is this a whole separate a separate set of rules or a separate path from the OTO? No, they're tied together. They're tied uh, together. They used to be actually separated, um, and then they were brought back together. So now that there is a situation where you could be a deacon in the EGC but not be second degree in the OTO. Uh, that's been mm -hmm. changed. You have to be this requirement now. So um, we, the EGC has the lay membership, congregants who, who can come and take part in the Mass, who aren't members, and EGC also has baptism and confirmation rites, uh, last rites, and marriage ceremonies, as any church today does. But moving beyond that, if you want to become a deacon in the church, you'd have to take initiations up to second degree. So Abrahadabra Oasis, here in Portland, Maine. Well, we just, um, we've been involved in the Portland area for about three, three years now. We just recently acquired a temple space 
in Portland here. Uh, we just had our first public mass in the temple space in May. And as we have before, we will be continuing to do both public and private classes and workshops at our temple space. We have social hours where we come and hang out. It's usually the second Tuesday of every month. Uh, we will come down and uh, hang out and just talk to people and get to know people. Usually about once a month, we have have a class here. Some are open to the public, some are open to initiates only. Throughout the summer, at least, we're going to be doing two masses. We'll have a public mass for the general people and then a private mass for initiates. And that's what we do. I mean, the, the main purpose of the OTO is mass, and we try and do it as often as possible. We also have you know, members who conduct various working groups on their own, and we use in the temple with other people, other members. Uh, upcoming, at the end of summer in August, we have, uh, we'll have we be at the main Pagan Pride Day again. It'll be our third year there. Uh, we're going to be doing some free workshops and classes and uh, generally, you know, get to know people and get them to kind of have a better understanding of what we do and what we are and what we're not. And your website is? It's www.abrahadabra-oto.org. Abrahadabra-oto.org. And also the national website, if you want more information, you can find at www.oto-usa.org. And that is the United States Grand Lodge yes. of the OTO. And thank you for coming here today. Or actually, thank you for having us here today and sharing more about the OTO here in Portland. And thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.
And that was Lisa Thiel with Lamas. And I want to give a shout out to all my fellow podkin out there. And also a special welcome to some fairly new podcasts on the scene. The iPod Witch with Brooke Stargazer and Pagan Parents on the Edge with Foxfire and Arrowwind. Both can be found on iTunes and you can also find the links to them on my website at www.paganheartinmaine.com. I want to thank Casey from the Abrahadabra Oasis for today's interview. And if you want to find out more, you can go to their website. And they will also have a table set up and will be holding workshops at the Southern Maine Pagan Pride Day this Saturday, August 16th, at the Allen Avenue Unitarian Universalist Church in Portland, Maine, starting at 10 a.m. There will be other workshops throughout the day, as well as vendors and children's activities. And you can find more information about that at www.mainpaganpride.day.org. And this is Kellyanna with Morgana.
And I'm going to call this episode 17. And as always, all music on a pagan heart is used with permission from the artists. And you can find links to all their websites at www.paganheartandmain.com. And the background music for today's episode is from Deep Sky Divers. And they can be found at deepskydivers.com. And to end out today's show, here's Gaia Consort with Drawing Down the Moon. Until next time, great blessings. Show our free 
freedom free is the love that we offer to Ours is the ecstasy of being Walking in the beauty of the great green earth Ours is the touching of the mystery Ours the experience of death and birth Ours is the liberating voice of nature Knowing that there isn't any more than this Ours is the ritual of love and pleasure Ours the delivery of the fivefold kiss 